Hello, and welcome to another episode of All The Hacks, a show about upgrading your life, money, and travel. I'm your host, Chris Hutchins, and if you want to create new and improved habits or become a super communicator, then stay tuned because this episode is amazing for that. Now, in 2024, I'm sure I'm not alone in trying to create some new habits. For me, it's mostly been around sleep, diet, and exercise, which is why I am so excited for this episode because I'm going to be delving into the intricacies of habit formation and learning how to effectively create, change, and redirect habits with one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on this topic, Charles Duhigg, author of New York Times bestselling book, The Power of Habit. We're gonna cover everything from the timeline to build a habit, the five cues that form a habit, the significance of keystone habits, as well as your environment, and so much more. We'll also talk about some of his latest research on how to use the science of conversation and connection to train ourselves to build great communication habits that can help us become what he calls super communicators. There is so much amazing content in this episode, so let's jump in right after this. If you're feeling guilty about procrastinating on your finances, don't worry, you're not alone. But don't assume you have to choose between doing it yourself or working with a guy in a suit that looks like your parents' financial advisor. You have other options. Check out Facet. When I shut down my financial planning firm a few years ago, we did extensive research on what financial service company to recommend to our clients, and we landed on Facet, so I'm excited to have them as a sponsor today. Facet makes financial planning accessible to everyone and addresses one of my biggest frustrations with this industry. I've long hated how so many advisors charge a high percentage of your assets, but not Facet. They only charge a flat annual membership fee, which means you actually keep more of what you invest. Through their tech platform, you'll get access to financial experts and a team of specialists across investments, taxes, and more. So tackle the uncertainty you're feeling about your finances and replace it with some real confidence about your money. Go to allthehacks.com slash facet, that's F-A-C-E-T, and they'll even waive the $250 enrollment fee for all of you. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash facet, F-A-C-E-T. Facet Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. Offer expires March 31st, 2024. Terms and conditions apply. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on. This is a real treat for me. Yeah, I'm excited. One of the key principles of the power of habit is that habits can be changed if we understand how they work. In the book, you explain how they work through the habit loop, but I'm wondering if you could walk us through the elements of a habit loop and how habits actually become habits. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a part of our brain known as the basal ganglia that literally every animal on earth has that exists almost solely to make habits because creating habits is critical to evolution. And what the basal ganglia does is it takes these components of a habit and sort of puts them together. And every habit has three parts. There's a cue, which is like a spark or the signal that a habit should start. There's a routine, which is the behavior itself, what we usually think of as a habit. And then finally, there's a reward. Every habit that you have produces a reward, whether you're aware of it or not. That's how it becomes a habit. And according to studies, about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is in fact a habit. So for instance, the first time you tried to back your car out of the driveway into the street, you really had to concentrate on it, right? You had to like figure out like what's going on in the rear view mirror and make sure you're not hitting the wall. But by now you can almost do it automatically on autopilot and you can think about other things while you're doing it. 
And that's because it's become a habit. And if we could see inside your brain, when you got into the street, there would be this little reward sensation that you're not even aware of, but that your brain notices and says to itself, oh, I should make this pattern, this cue routine reward into something that happens automatically. And that's how every animal has learned to evolve, because otherwise, every time we pass an apple or a rock on the ground, we would have to try and remember whether it tasted good last time. And so in the driveway example, would me just successfully parking be the reward? So what happens is, is that your brain anticipates a certain outcome and a certain reward sensation. It's learned to associate with that. And when you achieve that outcome, you get the reward sensation. Now, if you don't get the reward sensation, then what happens in your brain is the exact same thing that happens. Its technical name is depression. That when you anticipate a reward and you don't get that reward, what we see is a neurological pattern that's called depressive. And so that's why, for instance, you might not be hungry, but if you walk past the break room and you see some donuts in there, suddenly you start craving a donut, even though before you weren't even thinking about them because it's triggered this habit inside your head of if I go pick up a donut and I eat it, then the reward sensation is I get this small like hit of endorphins associated with carbohydrates and sugar. And so when your brain anticipates that habit and doesn't get it, it creates craving. The donut habit is one that I both share and think I would put in the less desirable habit camp. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> How do we make sure we're forming good habits or are there good and bad habits? No, to your brain, they're indistinguishable. Your brain is a machine that just looks to make things easier. Your brain always wants to work less. So if it can find a reliable pattern, oh, if I see this thing and then I do this thing, I get this reward, it will make that into a habit. And the truth is, whether it's a bad habit or a good habit is kind of up to you, right? And it differs from person to person. Like if I have a glass of wine when I get home from work, that's a habit that I really enjoy. For someone else, that's a disastrous habit, right? That's something that impacts them. And I should say, I don't actually have a glass of wine when I get home from work because otherwise I'm too tired the next morning. But the point being that there is no such thing as a good habit or a bad habit in a state of nature. There's just habits. And we have to decide which of them we want to encourage and which of them we want to discourage. And I guess the question there is, okay, so now I've identified these habits. We go two paths, ones that we have that we don't want. What's the path there? And ones that we want to create, what do we do? So maybe pick which direction to start. The easiest one to start with is how do we create a habit? And there's a number of studies in the power of habit. There's a number of stories of people who create habits in their lives or their companies or their societies. And one of my favorite examples of this is that there was this German healthcare plan that asked about a thousand of its members to come to this meeting. And so for about 40 minutes at the meeting, they lecture everyone on the importance of exercise, you know, and it's a good lecture. Exercise is important. Then they tell about a third of the room. Okay. We want you to stick around. Everyone else can leave. So two thirds of the room, they leave the third of the room that stuck around. They get an extra like 10 minute lecture. And in this lecture, the scientists say, okay, look, what we want you to do is we want you to choose a cue for exercise. Like decide right now what the cue is. Like you're going to put your shoes next to your bed, or you're going to call your friend and meet them at the gym every Wednesday night, something that will trigger the exercise habit and then go exercise. And when you're done exercising, we want you to give yourself a piece of chocolate right away. First of all, they're German. So they love chocolate, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot. But most of us, you know, we'll go and we'll hit the gym. And then like an hour later, an hour and a half later, we'll have a piece of chocolate and we'll pretend like they're not related to each other, right? Like we're not giving ourselves permission to eat chocolate. But what they said is, look, give yourself that reward right away. Make your brain notice the rewards you get from exercise. So six months later, they tracked down everyone in that room. 
everyone who didn't get that special additional 10 minute lecture about eh, anywhere from 13 to 18% of them are exercising. That's about what you would see in any population. The folks who just got this 10 minute additional lecture who came up with a habit loop for themselves, they are exercising at a rate of 24 to 25%. And that's huge. It's almost double. Yeah. It's a big, big increase. The reason why this is important is because it points to how we can create habits. We create habits by just deciding on a cue and a reward that we can associate with them. And then reinforcing that cue and reward with the behavior over and over and over again until it takes hold. It can't be completely random, right? It can't be that like the cue for having a great conversation with my kid or asking my kid about their day is when I go check the mail. Although actually that could work. But the point is the cue and the reward should be somehow related to the behavior itself. But most of the time when people think about habits, they focus on the behavior. And what we've learned is that it's focusing on the cue and the reward that can yield the biggest dividends. How long does it take for that link to happen? I'm sure if it's set your shoes out and get a chocolate, is it just the first time you do it? Now, boom, set my shoes out next time it's easy or? It depends from person to person and habit to habit, right? If you want to create a habit involving something really painful, it's probably going to take a while. If you want to create a habit of just eating ice cream, like when I get home from work, I eat ice cream, then you can probably do that in a day, right? It's not going to take a lot of... Now, exercise is a good example because exercise is a little bit painful and eating chocolate is a little bit good. And so what we find is that there's no formula about how, when that habit will take hold, but we can say that every time you do it, the neural pathways associated with that loop will become slightly thicker. And at some point you'll just start doing the behavior without even hardly thinking about it. But it could be a week or a year, or and it really varies to person. Probably not a year. In studies, even the hardest habits become habitual in at least three months and oftentimes much, much faster. So like 30, 90 days for something hard, if you're still going and it's not working, what do you think the most likely thing someone was doing wrong was? Well, if they're trying to build this habit, they might not be reinforcing it in a stable environment, right? So like stability is a huge part of how that habit develops. So for instance, one of the things that they found is if you want to quit smoking, the best time to quit smoking is when you're on vacation because all your normal cues have been disrupted. And so there's nothing to remind you to smoke. And so it's easier to quit. So if you're someone who's trying to build an exercise habit, but you're moving from hotel to hotel every three days, and you're waking up at different times of the day, and some days there's a gym nearby, and some days there isn't, and the reward you're giving yourself is one day you give yourself a reward of a smoothie, and then the next day the reward is a long shower, and then the next day the reward is a piece of chocolate. You really want to get like a lot of stability in that pattern, because it's the stability and the stable pattern that the basal ganglia pays attention to and learns from. Okay. And going back to the very beginning, you talked about, well, we all have habits. We know that the rock isn't something that we want to eat like an apple might be. I have to assume that exercise, there was some habit around it already. It wasn't that I just created this new exercise habit. I've exercised before. Am I actually changing an old habit or how do you compare that? So if you had an exercise habit, you might be changing it. But take me, for instance, I was not an athlete in high school and I really wasn't an athlete after high school either. And then I decided that I wanted to run for health and I built a habit around training for half marathons. In fact, I went for a run this morning. I did five miles and I hardly even think about it when I do it. So that's creating a habit. 
Now, it could be that for some people, they already have existing habits and they want to reinforce them or they want to redirect them. Maybe I used to run 10Ks and now I want to run longer distances for a half marathon. So am I building a new habit or am I changing an old habit? It's probably a combination of both. But most of the time when we talk about changing a habit, what people are really talking about is that they want to extinguish a habit, right? I'm a smoker and I want to stop smoking. I overeat or I procrastinate and I want to start procrastinating. That's when people begin thinking about changing a habit. And oftentimes their first step is not to say, I want to change the habit. Their first step is to say, I want to extinguish this habit. The problem is once you have a neural pathway associated with that habit, that neural pathway is always going to be there. Anne Grabiel, who's a researcher at MIT, did a series of experiments where she would have rats run through mazes for rewards until it became a habit. And then she would remove the rat from the maze for like three years. And if she dropped the rat in the maze and the cue was stable, then the rat would be able to go through the maze like that. It would, the habit would take over. These neural pathways, once they are created, they stick around. So rather than trying to extinguish a habit, rather than trying to break a bad habit, the way that we should think about it is that we should think about it as, I want to change this habit. And what that means is recognize what the cue is, recognize what the reward is, and find a new behavior that corresponds to that old cue and that delivers something similar to that old reward. Let's take an example that I think you just briefly mentioned that I know I can relate to and, and probably many people, which is we grew up in the clean plate cub household. And now it's just a habit that like I have to finish all the food to the point that it like if there's crumbs on the table, I'm kind of like, well, somebody's got to eat that little crumb and it doesn't make any sense. How do I redirect that habit to something else. Okay, so let's diagnose this because this is something you feel like you do right now. I would say I'm like on the road to recovery, but by no mechanism and I'd rather be farther. Okay, so let me ask you, let's diagnose what the cue is there. You're sitting at dinner, you're full, you're not hungry anymore. And you see your kid has that plate of like veggie dinosaurs or something like that, right? What for you is the cue? When do you find yourself overeating? I mean, usually it's that... I don't know if, how much I'm processing this, but it's like, I'm done, but there's still some food on my plate. And I'm like, oh, I don't want it to go to waste. Like, I'm a frugal person. And the strategy in the past that doesn't work in all scenarios, to your point about stability, is I would like, oh, I've got this piece of bread. I'll just like rub it on the ground. And then it's like, you know, <laughs> I try to, but like, you know, you're at a nice restaurant. You're not going to be doing that. You don't want to show your kids like, oh, when I, daddy's done with food, he pours a glass of milk all over his steak. <laughs> so, okay. For you, what I'm hearing is that the cue oftentimes is seeing a piece of food that you know will be thrown away if it's not consumed and that this triggers for you some sort of frugality instinct. That's very normal. Most people, when they talk about this habit, most of what they talk about is boredom. For them, the cue is boredom. I'm sitting at the table. I'm already done eating. I'm waiting for other people to finish. I'm kind of bored. The novelty of another piece of food appeals to me. But whatever it is, there is some trigger. There is some cue. And then we know what the behavior is. We know what the routine is. You pick up the food and you eat it. Now, the question is, what reward is it delivering to you? When you eat that piece of food that you know you don't need, how do you feel? Like I shouldn't have eaten it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, It's sort of a little bit regretful, right? Or at least an hour later I do. In the moment, there might be a reward of like, oh, good. Then, you know, I didn't waste any food tonight. Or sometimes, you know, if I'm diagnosing myself here, sometimes it's the food was very good. I enjoy eating it. It's like the donut, right? Like I'm not eating the donut because I'm hungry. It just tastes good. And so if dinner tastes good, I want to finish it. 
I mean, and you can test this, right? Like put some really disgusting food on your table and see if you pick at it even after you're done eating. And my guess is no. My guess is what you're picking up is you're picking up like the steak that tastes yummy or, you know, the sweet fruit or a piece of dessert. There's probably some type of immediate reward that you're getting that's actually taste sensation, some feeling of pleasure. So, okay, so if we know what the cue is, and the way that we figure this out is we run experiments, right? Just talking about it oftentimes won't yield what the right cue and the right reward are that's actually happening, but you can run little experiments to figure it out. But once we figure that out, once we say, okay, look, for Chris, the cue is that when he's sitting at the dinner table and he sees a piece of food that's not going to get eaten, it triggers this need for frugality, this need not to waste. And the reward is that actually, usually the food is pretty tasty, And so as a result, this frugality gives him a little feeling of satiation because you eat something yummy. If we figured out that that is, in fact, the cue and the reward, then let's find a new behavior that corresponds to that cue and deliver something similar to that old reward. So it could be that, for instance, when you see that food on the table, you know that you're going to have an instinct of frugality. So maybe you have like a Tupperware that you just put all the old food into that sits in the refrigerator. Right? Because that way it's not going to get thrown away, at least not immediately. And let's say that on that table, we also have some healthy but sweet things to eat. Instead of eating the dessert, you have a slice of apple. Instead of having the fattening steak, you have a small orange. If you put those in your environment so that you can deliver that same reward, I want taste sensation, I want that satiation, but I can get it from this healthier choice rather than the unhealthy choice then you'll eventually latch on to that because you're not trying to deny yourself that reward. You're just trying to find a better alternative for it. I'm thinking of like, you know, those little tiny Andes mints. I don't even like them, but I'm just like, you know, some small little thing. It could very well be that. Oftentimes when it comes to food, what we're looking for is we're literally looking for some type of taste and one bite is as good as 10 bites. So like a little mint will often do the trick if in fact, you like the taste of that mint, right? If it feels tasty. No, yeah, I don't, I don't really like Andy's. Maybe it's like an M&M or something. Yeah, so it's probably not going to work for you then. <laughs> so it's about redirecting, not killing, because you just can't turn the habit off. It's really hard to kill it. And the truth of the matter is that oftentimes figuring out what that cue and reward is, is the hard part. There is nothing I love more than learning something I enjoy is actually so good for you and nothing showcases that better than Pu'er tea. It has so many health benefits and one of my favorite ways to consume Pu'er is from our sponsor today. Peaks Pu'er teas are all cold extracted using only wild harvested leaves from 250 year old trees rich in minerals, theraflavins and catechins. Then everything is triple toxin screened for pesticides, heavy metals and toxic mold commonly found in plants. Using Peaks products is so easy and requires zero prep because they're all in pre-measured quantities that dissolve in cold or hot water in seconds, and they are so travel-friendly. They have so many different products, but this year, my two go-to teas are the Green Pu'er, which is great for mental clarity and energy, and the Black Pu'er, which helps kickstart digestion and metabolism with a rich, earthy flavor that is so good and probably one of my favorite teas to drink. And if you need another reason, search for all the amazing research-backed benefits of polyphenols for your gut microbiome, heart, blood sugar, and then be happy that Pu'er is more concentrated in polyphenols than 
all other teas in the world. But you don't even have to take my word or do any of that research because Peak Tea offers free U.S. shipping, free returns, and a money-back guarantee. And for a limited time, you can get up to 15% off and a free quiver with 12 tea samples with my link at allthehacks.com peak. That's P-I-Q-U-E. So check it out today at allthehacks.com peak, P-I-Q-U-E. It's been about seven years since I first signed up for Notion, but at that time, I was a bit blinded by the fact that I was already using other tools for docs and notes. And then we found out we were having a child and we had this whole project to plan for that needed way more than just a doc or a spattering of notes. It needed to-do lists, places to house all our research on hospitals, doulas, pediatricians, and a lot more. It needed to be collaborative so Amy and I could share helpful articles or content we found about taking care of a newborn. So we did it all on Notion and we both so quickly saw the light and I couldn't be happier to have them as a sponsor for today's episode. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects all into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. Over the past four years, it's become the central place I manage my work, family, tasks, travel, personal projects, and so much more. I'm in Notion all day, every day, and now that I have so much going on there, it's amazing to have AI built right inside of Notion that works across your entire workspace. And that fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger, doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. So try Notion AI for free when you go to notion.com slash all the hacks. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash all the hacks to try the powerful, easy to use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, notion.com slash all the hacks. So in The Power of Habit, I tell the story of this cookie habit I had. Every afternoon when I was working at the New York Times at like 3.30, I'd go up to the cafeteria and I'd get a cookie. I actually put up signs on my desk that say, do not have a cookie or do not eat a cookie. And I would somehow just ignore them because it was a habit, right? I just would get up and get a cookie without even looking at the sign. And so I decided to try and figure out like, what is the cue and what's the reward here? And oftentimes the cues and rewards, they are tricky to figure out at first. So the cue is actually pretty easy because I found the urge to have a cookie always hit me between about 3.15 and 3.45 in the afternoon. It was clearly a time of day. And there's five general cues that most cues fall into these five categories. It's a time of day, a particular place, the presence of certain other people, a certain emotion, or a behavior that's become ritualized. So for me, it was the time of day. And that was pretty easy to figure out. But then I have to figure out what the reward of the cookie is. And at first I thought, the reward is it's a cookie, right? A cookie tastes really yummy. And I told researchers this and they were like, oh, no, my friend, you do not understand what's going on here. There's thousands of possible rewards that you could be acting on. So you need to experiment and figure them out. Is it, in fact, that I just want this taste sensation? So the next day when I get up to get a cookie, instead, I get an apple and I eat the sweet apple and I see, does that make my craving for a cookie go away? And the answer was no. And then the next day I try something else, right? The next day I'm like, oh, maybe the reward is I just need a break from work. So instead of going up to the cafeteria, I like walk around the building on the outside and kind of stretch my legs, but still the craving is there. And eventually what I figured out is the reason I was going to get that cookie was because when I got the cookie, inevitably in the cafeteria, I would see some of my friends and I would sit there and gossip with them for like 15 minutes while I was eating the cookie. And that was the reward. It was a social reward. Once I understood what the cue and the reward was through these experiments, I was able to reprogram the behavior. And now 3.30 in the afternoon, I'm not at the New York Times anymore, so it's a little bit different. But at 3.30 in the afternoon, what I would do is I would stand up, 
I would look around the newsroom for someone else that I like to talk to. I'd go over and I'd gossip with them for 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'd go back to my desk and the cookie urge was totally gone because it turns out it wasn't about the cookie. It was a vehicle for another reward. Wow. Okay. So in that case, the time was there. That wasn't the challenge. It was trying to alleviate the cookie. What about circumstances where there are other kind of competing factors? So you going back to working out, it's like, oh, I want to wake up early to work out. It's like, you've got to wake up early. Then you've got to actually do the workout. And there's multiple actions that need to happen in a row. What happens there? Well, I mean, first of all, we need rewards for each because you're talking about multiple habits. You're talking about a habit of waking up early. You're talking about a habit of getting to the gym. You're talking about a habit of working hard at the gym. And so you need to give yourself a reward for each of those. But the first thing you need to do is figure out, is this actually a habit that's realistic? <laughs> like if you hate waking up in the morning, you should not try and exercise in the morning, at least not at first. In fact, one of the things that we know about exercise habits is that the best way to do them is to make them as easy as possible. So in a lot of the habit labs, when they're trying to inculcate an exercise habit, what they'll do is they'll tell people, what we want you to do for the first week is we just want you to put on your workout clothes and then don't work out. You can just stay home and watch TV if you want. And then in the second week, we want you to run half a mile. And inevitably what happens is that people put on their workout clothes for day one, day two, by day three, they feel pretty stupid putting on workout clothes without working out. So they go for a half a mile run and they do that for a couple of more days. And then they're like, a half a mile run isn't actually that hard. Why don't I just run a mile tomorrow? And eventually they develop an exercise habit that really works. So you don't have to build the full habit at once, I guess is my lesson here. Exactly. And what's most important is... If, in fact, that's someone who never wakes up early and the thought of exercise in the morning seems totally unappealing, then they'll tell them, look, exercise in the afternoon, exercise whenever you feel like you would most want to exercise, set that as the time of day when you exercise. And then eventually, once the exercise becomes a habit, then you can start playing with the timing habit, right? That's exactly what happened with me. I hated exercising in the morning, so I started running after work. And eventually, running after work kind of became a habit. And then I was like, oh, now I can shift it to the morning. Because now I have something new to focus on. The the exercise part is taken care of. It's the waking up early part that I need to really work on. My habit was just the traditional wake up early in the morning and then get caught up on all the things before you get out of bed. And it was literally just put the phone on the other half of the room. And by the time you've gotten up, now it's like, well, now I'm out of the bed. That's exactly right. You're basically hacking yourself, right? (laughs) You're hacking your own habits or your own behaviors because you recognize That when we're in the grip of a habit, and this is why habits are so powerful, we actually stop thinking. That's what makes habits valuable is that I don't have to think about how to walk. I don't have to think about the route home. I don't have to think about whether I should eat that thing on the ground because I just let my habits do it for me. So I can use my brain for other things. And when the basal ganglia takes over, your neural work associated with that behavior goes down. So you actually are kind of thoughtless when you're in the grip of a habit. And by putting your phone across the room, you're disturbing the stability of that behavior and you're forcing yourself to think a little bit more rather than just go on autopilot. And I would argue, based on my knowledge of your work, just getting up early, that habit of I'm now out of bed felt like a keystone habit for me because now it makes it easy to work out. Now it makes it easy to prepare something healthy for breakfast because I have some time. And am I correctly using keystone habits in that manner. And how do they play a role in all of this? So some habits seem to set off this chain reaction that change a number of other behaviors as well. 
And we refer to those as keystone habits because when a keystone habit changes, it tends to have this magnified effect on other types of behaviors. Now, what's interesting is keystone habits are different for different people. A lot of it has to do with your self-image. So let me ask you a question. You said that for you, waking up in the morning is a keystone habit. And I believe that's true because it sounds like your workout and your, how you eat and how you sort of structure your days is set by that. If I went back 10 or 15 years, were you a morning person? Probably not. No. What about in college? Think back to college. Like it's a Saturday morning in college. How late would you sleep? It's a good question. I was never someone who was like on either extreme. Okay. You know, I was never, I remember I had roommates. I was never like the one that they all woke up and they're like, come on, come on. We're trying to go do this stuff. But I was probably not the one that woke up super early. So I don't know if I had one extreme there. That's totally fine. And my guess is if I describe to you someone who wakes up early would you think that that's a responsible person? Like, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? It's funny. I was just watching a video of another All the Hacks guest, Sahil Bloom, and he gets a lot of flack for saying he's like, I don't know anyone that wakes up at 5 a.m. and doesn't like get a lot done in their life. And he's like, I'm not saying you can't sleep in. I'm saying the people who wake up at 5 seem to do a lot of stuff in their life. Yeah. And so I guess that leaves me thinking waking up at 5 is a good habit to have. So there's a stereotype in your head about people who wake up early are people who get things done. They're like doers. Now, by the way, there's very little evidence supporting that, but it's a cultural norm that a lot of us grab onto. So the reason why waking up early for you is a keystone habit is because it basically helps you change your self-image when you do it. It's something that's hard for you. It's not natural. It's something that you associate with positive behavior. And so when you do that, you start to see yourself a little bit differently. And our self-image is kind of an interesting thing. Particularly in psychology, there's these things known as revealed preferences and stated preferences. And so oftentimes, we will state what a preference is. I want to wake up early. I want to eat healthy. But what our brain pays attention to is our revealed preferences. If I say I want to wake up early and I wake up at nine o'clock every day for four days in a row, my brain basically thinks I'm a liar and I don't actually want to wake up early. My near conscious self-image becomes based on my behavior rather than on what I say I want. And when you wake up early in the morning, the reason it's probably a keystone habit for you is because it slightly changes how you see yourself. When you wake up early and you're out of bed, there's part of your brain that's saying, you know what? I'm the type of person who can get out of bed at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. Like that kind of person, they don't procrastinate. That's the kind of person who like gets stuff done right away. And it sets off this cascade of other behaviors that you draw on as being something that your self-image appreciates. And eventually you do it enough and you start waking up early automatically because you genuinely think that you are a person who wakes up early. It's funny that we're talking about this because the habit of waking up early is like two days old in this. <laughs> <laughs> and this morning was okay. like the only successful version of it. And the habit of waking up early is actually really straightforward for me. It's just go to bed early. If I go to bed at nine o'clock, waking up at five o'clock is really easy. But if I went to bed at 11, it would be impossible. But the key here is that the habit of going to bed at nine o'clock, the reward is not waking up at five o'clock because that's not a reward for you. You don't associate pleasure with waking up at five o'clock. If you want to build that habit of going to bed at nine o'clock, you need to incorporate some rewards into going to bed at nine o'clock, independent of what time you wake up. I think I get a lot of stress in the morning when it's like I wake up and there's a few things I want to do but then the kids are up and there's stuff to do. So like, I want to wake up early. Like today I woke up at like, 
I set the alarm for 5.09. Don't ask me why. And I think I woke up at like 5.05. And it felt great. It felt like I could wake up at this early hour without it feeling like a drag. Tonight, I am so excited to go to bed at 9 o'clock. Because it means that I can do this thing that I want to do without a lot of effort. So what's interesting there is one of the things that we know about rewards is that when we decide a reward is rewarding, it becomes more rewarding. So think about getting grades. Like there's nothing in your biology that says getting an A is something that you should want. Why would a normal human care about what letter they get on a report card? Except that your parents told you getting A's means you're smart and you're good and you're going to be successful. So we come to associate the reward of an A on a report card with a positive feeling. But it's the deciding that the reward is rewarding that makes it actually even more rewarding. And so when you woke up this morning at 5.09 and you felt great and you've been thinking about it all day and you're like, I could do this every day. This is fantastic. The act of deciding that you felt great, the act of deciding that this is a good thing, it makes it more of a reward for you when you go to bed at nine o'clock. So I take back what I said before, perhaps for you, waking up at 5 a.m. and feeling okay about it is in fact the reward. Although my guess is also that if this is going to become a consistent behavior more than two days, you're going to need to give yourself some rewards when you go to bed and you fall asleep, which are things like... You're going to need to like have the room set the way that you want it. You're going to need to take a couple of minutes and congratulate yourself on getting into bed at nine o'clock. That's why people use this lavender spray, because we know that lavender is associated with an easy reward sensation. And so when they spritz their pillow with lavender spray and then they lay down in it, the scent gives them a reward sensation. My guess is that if you build more of those, it's going to be easier and easier to go to bed at nine o'clock. Which, by the way, nine o'clock is pretty early. Like, <laughs> I agree. My wife goes to bed at nine fifteen, and I make fun of her for it. So, <laughs> I mean, I would have made fun of myself four days ago. <laughs> but I found that the more I think about sleep, the things that I do from nine to eleven when I go to sleep late are not things that are promoting good sleep, and. 75% of the time are not ways that I would spend two of my 24 hours if I were making good decisions. And so in a way, some of the reward of if I set my phone away from the bed and I get in bed at nine o'clock, some of the reward for me is like, I know better use the two hours than if I stay up two hours later and wake up two hours later. I think that's really smart. And I think a huge part of this is learning about yourself, right? Paying attention to yourself as a science experiment. So for me, it's email. If I start trying to return emails at 9.30 or 10, it'll take me forever and like, I'll just be frustrated. But if I wake up and I hit email first thing at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, I like breeze through them. It's like magic. And so part of it is just learning. It's not like I'm a morning person. It's not like I like waking up at that time. And all things being equal, I probably wouldn't choose to do emails because they're kind of boring. But if we see ourselves as an ongoing experiment and we conduct experiments in our own life, we tend to learn a lot about ourselves. I like this. Just doing this podcast, I've learned a lot about myself, but I'm constantly trying to experiment. When it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you've already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. And now that I'm working with Gelt, I finally feel like I have a partner I can trust to handle everything for my business and personal taxes. And I'm excited to partner with them for this episode. Think of Gelt as the ultimate modern CPA. They not only offer an amazing tech platform that gives you personalized guidance to maximize deductions, tax credits, and savings, but also 
everything is backed by an in-house team of expert CPAs who can recommend the most effective tax strategies to minimize risk and grow your wealth. And best of all, you can have this transparent, open communication with your team in whatever way works best for you, whether that's on their platform, over email, in Slack, or scheduling a call. Finally, my favorite story is that when we first onboarded with Gelt, they reviewed our past returns and found a huge mistake our prior CPA had made, so they refiled and got us back all that money. So if you're ready for a more premium, proactive tax strategy to optimize and file your taxes, you have to check out Gelt. And as an All The Hacks listener, you can skip the waitlist and get started today. Just head to allthehacks.com slash gelt, G-E-L-T. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash G-E-L-T. The latest report from the FTC showed that in 2023, $10 billion was lost to consumer fraud, and $2.7 billion of that was lost to imposter scams, which had over 850,000 reports last year. So what do you do about it? Well, first off, just learning more about the tactics these scammers use can help you know what to look out for. But a big way I try to keep our family protected is to make sure all our personal info is removed from as many data broker websites as possible so we're less of an enticing target. You'd be shocked at how many sites out there are sharing your address, phone number, birthday, email, and more. Fortunately, you can get these data brokers to remove your info, but unfortunately, the process takes hours and hours to do yourself. I know because I tried to contact them, and only after spending 10 hours did I give up and start using Delete Me, our sponsor today. And not only do I use Delete Me for our immediate family, but I also paid for a subscription for my parents and in-laws as well. Delete Me is an amazing service that will not just find and remove your personal info from hundreds of data broker websites, but they'll continuously scan for new data that shows up and get that removed as well. On average, they find and remove over 2,000 pieces of data for a customer in their first two years. So if you want to get your personal information removed from the web, go to allthehacks.com slash delete me and get 20% off a plan for you or your entire family. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash delete me. I just want to thank you quick for listening to and supporting the show. Your support is what keeps this show going. To get all of the URLs, codes, deals, and discounts from our partners, you can go to allthehacks.com slash deals. So please consider supporting those who support us. One habit-related thing we haven't talked about is habit stacking, which I've heard a lot about and I've heard the best way to build new habits is to stack them on top of other habits you already have. And what does the data or the science actually say about trying to say, oh, I'm not flossing, but I can brush my teeth. So do them together. This is basically a phrase that's been made up. So it's it's not, habit stocking is not something that there's like scientific evidence of. What there is scientific evidence of is that if you create an environment in which a habit is easier, then you're more likely to do it. So take the teeth brushing example. If I'm in the habit of brushing my teeth and I make that a cue for flossing, then it might make flossing a little bit easier because I'm already in the bathroom. I have the floss right next to the toothbrush, right? Now, the truth of the matter is, though, that just deciding I'm going to stack these habits does not mean that flossing becomes as easy as brushing your teeth. And so for many people, it doesn't. But in general, when we're thinking about habit stacking or we're thinking about designing habits, what we should do is we should look for environments that allow that habit to occur with the least amount of friction. And so that's why this idea of stacking becomes popular is because once I'm already at the gym, I'm already in my workout clothes, I have a habit of going in and using the machines. 
the treadmill's right there. So building a running habit is a lot easier than if I try and do it at home where I'd have to change into my clothes and I have to go find a place to run. So the key is not necessarily the stacking, except that if the stacking gives you access to an environment where that habit becomes easier, then you're more likely to do it. And then eventually it'll become a habit. And I guess earlier you said most people don't think about the cue and the reward. Stacking forces you to think of the cue also. So you're kind of an extra third of the way there. Sure. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. The stacking idea has come up a number of times. And like every time I talk to academics about it, they're like, it doesn't make any sense. Like it's basically selling a concept of habits that is not what the science tells us. But if it helps you figure out cues and rewards, if it helps you find environments where habits become more likely, then it's great. I like it. And then one other thing, this is somewhat tangential to habits, but when I think about all the things I have to do, I feel like you're someone who has an opinion, at least, on how to organize your tasks, what you need to do, being productive, setting goals, to-do lists, and all of that. So there's a lot of research that's been done on like how to write to-do lists the right way. And one of the big insights is that all of us have what's known as a cognitive need for closure. So about 20% of people, when they're writing a to-do list... They will put something on that list that they have already completed because it makes them feel so good to like check it off, right? <laughs> and if you think about it, that's ridiculous. That's like the opposite of a to-do list. A to-do list is not supposed to be things that you've already done just to engage in some emotional management. So what we know is that if you look at a to-do list, there's going to be this impulse to find some of the easiest or quickest things to do. Now, the problem is that might not be the most important or the most impactful things to do. And so what we should do is we should kind of have two lists. One is a memory list. When I think of a task that I want to do, I put it on the memory list and then I put the memory list to the side, but it lets me, I don't have to store it in my brain. I can store it on a piece of paper. My to-do list though should optimally only have at most three things on it because every night what I should decide is for the next day, what's the most important thing I can get done. And if I happen to get that thing done, that's number one on the list, then I've got a second really important thing to get done tomorrow. And then maybe this third thing is something that I want to think about tomorrow night to see if it deserves to be in the number one slot the next day. The fewer things you put on your to-do list, giving thought to putting the most important things on that to-do list, the more successful you're going to be. Because the problem is if you have 15 things on a to-do list and one of them is go wash the car and another one is write the memo that's going to change my company you're going to go wash the car first because it's easier and more fun and you can get it done within minutes. Whereas writing a memo that's going to change your company, that's going to take a long time. So you're going to keep putting it off as long as there's other things on that to-do list that you can distract yourself with. And what about when there are things that are small, like I had to register our daughter for preschool next year and it's going to take 20 minutes to log into the site and add the thing to the card and it needs to happen tomorrow, but it's not going to take that much time do I use one of my three slots for tomorrow for little things? No. So there's times in my day where I pull out the memory list and I'm like, look, I just need a break from work, right? My most important task today is to get this article done. That's number one on my to-do list. But I've worked on it for two hours and I need half an hour off. And that's when I pull out that memory list and I'm like, how can I procrastinate in a useful way? Oh, I can go on my daughter's website. Like booking travel. For some reason, I don't know why. I love to book travel. It makes me feel really good to like make my plane tickets and like book my car. That's how I procrastinate is I have a list of like 
tickets I need to book. And that doesn't go on my to-do list because those certainly are not the most important things to get done today. It's for a trip that I'm not taking for three months. But when I do need a break, rather than watching TikTok, I pull out my memory list and I just look to see, is there something easy I can just get done right away? The point is I'm telling myself, this is the most important thing to do today. Don't let those other little chores get in the way of the most important thing. I wonder if I've inadvertently created this without knowing this. The way I set up my tasks is I have a bunch of columns, but the most important ones are what I'm doing now, what's up next, and like a backlog. Yeah. And I don't commingle the next three things with the backlog. And when the next three things are gone, I go hunt through the backlog, which maybe is kind of like a memory list and then move it over. So it doesn't have to necessarily be completely separate, but the idea is separate the next few things from all the things. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have that memory list, right? Because otherwise you're going to forget some stuff. Yes. But it does mean that you have a to-do list that isn't about everything you want to get done. It's helping you focus on the most important things to get done right now. Okay. I like that. Now, before we got started, we were talking about habits and we were talking about communicating a goal of a lot of ours, especially coming out of the pandemic. like, let's go spend more time with people. Let's get back connected. And you made this comment that so much of communication is actually habit. Yeah. And I imagine that's what led you to this new book. And I'm curious how you think about communication and habit tying into each other. So that my new book, Super Communicators, which just came out, it's about the science of conversation and connection. I came to it actually in the wake of The Power of Habit. I would get all these emails from people and they would say things like, the ideas in the book really helped me stop drinking or helped me stop procrastinating or helped me start exercising. And that's been great. That makes me successful. But there's all these other people that I interact with that I'm reliant on them for my success and they have bad habits. So tell me, how can I force them to change their habits? And of course, the answer is you can't force them to change their habits. But it turns out that most of what we do every day is dependent on other people. We work in teams. We have families. The ability to coordinate with other people is really important to success. And that's not about habit formation. That's about communication, right? Because communication is how we coordinate. Now, a lot of our conversations and a lot of our communication become habitual. We fall into bad habits. In fact, this is actually one of the things that started me on this book, Super Communicators, is that I fell into this bad habit with my wife where like I would come home from work and I'd have a tough day and I'd complain about my day. And she very reasonably would suggest a solution. She'd say something like, oh, you know, why don't you take your boss to lunch and you can get to know him a little bit better. And I, instead of being able to hear what she was proposing, I would even get even more upset, right? I'd say like, why aren't you listening to me? I just want you to like support me and have my back and be outraged on my behalf. And this was a habit. This was a pattern that we had fallen into. You know, we've been married 20 years now, so it's not like we're new to each other. And so I called up all these researchers to ask them what's going on. And they said, oh, look, what you're missing here is you're missing what we've learned in the last decade in this golden age of communication that we're living through, which is that we think about a discussion as being about one thing. But in fact, every discussion is made up of different kinds of conversations. And most of them fall into one of three buckets. There's practical conversations, like let's solve your problem. Let's make a plan together. There's emotional conversations where I tell you how I'm feeling and I don't want you to solve my feelings. I want you to empathize or I want you to relate. And then there's social conversations, which is about how we relate to each other and how we relate to society, particularly if we have social identities that are influencing how we're speaking and hearing. And they said, when you came home, you were having an emotional conversation and your wife was having a practical conversation. And what we know is if you're not having the same kind of conversation at the same moment, you can't really hear each other and you can't really connect. 
And learning to do that is all about building the right communication habits. Whether I habitually notice what kind of conversation is going on here, whether I habitually ask questions, whether I habitually listen closely and show someone that I'm listening to them. When you look at Homo sapiens, our superpower is communication. That's what makes our species so successful. And our brains are designed to build great communication habits if we know the right inputs to get it. If we know how to train ourselves to have the right habits, then they become instincts. So much of what you said resonates. In our household, sometimes the roles are reversed and I'm defaulting the practical. Yes. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention a video that I'm sure you've seen about a nail. And if you haven't, I will send it to you. But it's a woman with a nail in her head and she's trying to have an emotional conversation and her husband is trying to have a very practical conversation. It's trying to remove the nail. So here's an interesting thing. And in our relationship, it also happens a lot that, that I'm the practical one and my wife is having a more emotional conversation. There's been a lot of studies that have looked at whether that actually is true. And it turns out that there's basically no gender differences. It's just that we notice the gender difference when it fits the right category in our head. Also, that oftentimes we fall back on a communication style that we're most comfortable with. It's most habitual for us. And oftentimes for men, that's explaining things in a practical way. That does not mean that we're necessarily having a practical conversation. Like if I'm talking about money with my wife and I'm like, we got to do this and we got to do that and we got to have a budget. It's not actually a practical conversation. It's that I'm having an emotional conversation, but I don't have the vocabulary for those emotions. And so I fall back on my habits and my habits are very budget oriented or planning oriented, but I'm still having an emotional conversation. So sometimes we have to divorce what's actually happening in this conversation from what kinds of words are each person using? And where do we get started? Is it more about taking assessment of ourselves? Where do we go? So here's the single best habit. So there are these people who are super communicators and a super communicator. Let me sort of explain what that is. Like if I was to ask you this question, if you had a bad day, and you wanted to call someone who you know would make you feel better. Does the person you would call, do they pop into your mind? Probably. Yeah, who is it? Probably either my wife or a friend that I've known since high school. Okay. So for you, your wife and that friend, they are super communicators for you. And you're probably a super communicator for them. They probably call you because they know that you're going to listen to them. They know that you're going to appreciate and support them. They know that you're going to match them. Now, there are some people who can do this with almost anyone. They can connect with actually almost anyone that they want to. And what's the most amazing part is it's not hard. Anyone can learn to become a super communicator. What we found is that it's just a set of skills that some people learn and practice until they become habits. And the reason why that's important is because there are these characteristics of super communicators that all of us can learn from. And one of the most obvious one is asking questions. So consistent super communicators, they tend to ask 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. And some of those questions you don't even register as questions because they're things like, hey, what'd you think about that? Or like, oh, what'd you say next? Like they're inviting us into the conversation. But then some of the questions they ask are what are known as deep questions. And this is the single best habit that someone can form is to ask deep questions. And what's interesting about it is a deep question often doesn't appear deep. It doesn't appear overly intimate. A deep question can be as simple as saying to someone like, what do you do for a living? I'm a lawyer. Oh, really? What made you decide to go to law school? What do you love about practicing the law? What's the best case you ever handled? When I ask those questions, what I'm doing is I'm asking them about their values, their beliefs, or their experiences. Instead of asking about the facts of their life, I'm asking them how they feel about their life. 
And what they're going to tell me in response is something meaningful. And it's going to tell me what kind of mindset they're in. If they're an emotional mindset or a practical mindset or a social mindset. And I'm going to be able to use that to match them and invite them to match me. So we're having the same kind of conversation at the same time. So the best communication habit you can develop is get into the habit where you ask deep questions. And it's really easy to do. I do it almost automatically without thinking about it. And so when you get that response, how do you know what kind of conversation they're having? Oh, I mean, it's pretty obvious. If you ask someone, why'd you decide to go to law school? And in fact, studies have shown this. There was a guy who participated in the study who was a lawyer and they, they asked him, why did you decide to go to law school? And they asked him this multiple times with multiple different questioners. And sometimes he would answer the question by saying like, I really wanted a stable job. And I knew if I had a law degree, I'd be able to provide for my family. Okay. That's pretty practical, right? That guy's in a practical frame of mind, but the same guy, when asked the same question a couple of days later by a different person, he said, well, you know, part of it is the stability thing. But like when I was young, I saw my uncle get arrested and I thought it was really unfair. And so I always wanted to fight for the underdog. Okay. That guy's not in a practical mindset right now. He's in an emotional mindset or perhaps a social mindset, right? Depending on what he says next. And when I ask more questions, how he reveals himself and all you have to do is listen. And you can figure out, is this person talking to me about how they feel about things? Are they talking to me about practical facts of things? Are they talking to me about how they interact with other people? It's not hard to do. We all have an interior sense of which conversation is happening. We just have to put ourselves in a position where we can ask questions that elicit from this other person what's going on inside their head, how they see themselves and they see the world. And then we just have to make a point of listening to what they say and asking ourselves, what kind of question is actually happening here? And then is the intent to have a deeper, better communication conversation with them to match their style? The intent is to connect with them. And oftentimes the way that we connect is through matching. Within psychology, this is known as the matching principle. And what the matching principle says is if you're not having the same kind of conversation at the same moment, you'll fail to connect with each other. Now, that doesn't mean I have to be a slave to your desires, right? Simply because you want to have an emotional conversation, that does not mean I have to have an extended emotional conversation. I could invite you to get into a practical mindset. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Take my wife and I, for instance. Now we have this new habit that when I start complaining after work, she oftentimes asks me, do you want me to help you solve this problem? Or do you just need to vent and get this off your chest? And I really appreciate her asking. And I might say, I just need to vent. And then she'll listen to me vent for 30 or 45 seconds. She'll match me. And then she might say, I totally understand what you're feeling. That's really, really hard. It seems unfair. Would it be okay if we talk about ways to improve it? She's inviting me to match her. And every discussion has all three conversations in it. Oftentimes we might go from emotional to practical to social and back to practical and then emotional again. But as long as we're moving through those different kinds of conversations together, we will hear each other. What's dangerous is when I move into an emotional conversation and you move into a practical conversation, then we're speaking different languages. We're not really hearing each other. Can you double click a little more on the social side? I feel like that's one of the three legs that I'm like, I, I don't feel like I totally grasp it. Well, okay. So here's a good example. So where did you grow up? Outside DC in Virginia. Okay. And did that shape you? Like if you had grown up in California or if you had grown up in Mississippi, do you think you'd be a fundamentally different person now? Fundamentally is a, a strong descriptor. Or would you be a different person now? I think I'd be different. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like growing up in DC, that shaped your identity a little bit. Now, let me ask you this. If you look back on your life, when did you change the most? If there was one period where from year one to year three or four, you kind of change a lot. When would that be? Probably, I think in high school. Okay. 
And what was your high school like? Was it a competitive place? It was a boarding school, but I think... So I, that elicits a lot of things for a lot of people. But I think pre-high school, I was like a skater kid. And then in boarding school, I kind of like found other people like me. I became like a little bit of a math and computer nerd. Like it was, it's just kind of like changing and kind of yeah built a little bit more independence and entrepreneurial spirit. Whenever I talk about the history of being like a life hacker and entrepreneur, it seemed to all kind of come up around that time. And so I like just asking you about like, what was it like in high school? You suddenly just told me so much, right? What was it like in high school is a deep question. And you told me all this stuff about yourself that like you went through a transformation, that you're sensitive about the fact that some people think that boarding school has these issues around it, that you admire kind of entrepreneurship and the hustler mentality. So I've learned a lot about you. And if this was a real conversation, what I would do is I would tell you about where I grew up, right? And I'd tell you about Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went to Valley High School and how that influenced me. And the reason why this is a social conversation is because we're not talking about plans and we're not talking about emotions. What we're talking about is how we see ourselves based on how we think society sees us and based on how society influenced us. Right. The fact that you grew up in Washington, D.C., that that has meaning for you compared to growing up in California means that there's something about D.C. that you feel like is either reflected or not reflected in who you are. The fact that you went to boarding school and that, like you say, like I went to boarding school and for some people that might raise some issues. That means that, like, you're very conscious of the fact that that there's some people who might hear boarding school and think, oh, like privileged yuppie kid. And that you know that that's not true. You want to tell people like, no, I went to boarding school and it was really meaningful. Like it was really important in my development as a good person. Those are social conversations, because what we're talking about is we're talking about how we see ourselves in the context of society and how we see others. Now, the place where this becomes really important is think about discussing topics of identity like race or gender or religion or politics. Oftentimes we go into that conversation and we're hyper aware of our own identity and others' identities. And the problem is that when we are hyper aware of those things, when we're having a social conversation and we're pretending it's not a social conversation, we're talking about policing and you're a black Biden voter and I'm a white Trump voter. And we don't acknowledge these differences, these social identity differences, these differences between us, then we're not really having a conversation. Now, it can feel dangerous to introduce those things, right? But there's a way to do it that actually studies show is the right way to do it, which is instead of just acknowledging one identity, invite people to describe all of their identity. It's just asking an open-ended question about how they grew up or whatever the question is. Yeah, it could be asking an open-ended question about how they grew up so they can define themselves for you. They can tell you the fact that they're black, whether that in influences how they see themselves or, or doesn't. But you can also just acknowledge it and say, in fact, I've had this conversation before when we're talking about policing, is to say to someone, as a black man, I imagine you have some really different perspectives on the policing question. But I know you're also a lawyer, and so you probably think about it from a law enforcement perspective. And I know that, like me, you're a parent. And so you probably worry about your kids in different ways than I have to worry about my kids. And so I'm just wondering, like, how do you think about policing, given that you wear all these different hats? Think about how different that conversation is than saying, as a black man, what do you think about policing? Yeah, it's very different. Because when we focus on just one identity, what we do is we oftentimes push other people in ourselves into the stereotype of that identity. But when we acknowledge, which is what is obviously true, which is that none of us have just one identity, all of us have dozens, hundreds of identities. When we acknowledge those different identities, we escape that trap of the stereotype. 
We give someone the space to say, let me explain to you how I see myself in the context of, I know that society has all these preconceptions about the color of your skin or the work that you do, or whether you went to a boarding school or not. Let me explain to you how I see myself, because how I see myself is probably a little bit different than how I think society sees me on this solitary issue. Does that make sense? No, no, it makes total sense. I'm thinking now, okay, I want to be a super communicator. Okay. I've got a path, right? So inviting more deeper questions, listening, matching and inviting people to other types of conversations, acknowledging identities. Are there any other major components? Yeah. So there's one other thing that's missing from this. And and you mentioned listening, but there's a certain kind of listening that's really important, particularly when we're in conflict with someone or when we're having an argument or we just disagree about like anything. And what happens is that when we're talking to people, particularly when we're talking to people in conflict, There is this part of our brain that becomes suspicious. And the suspicion is this. I don't think this person is listening to me. I think they're waiting their turn to speak. We're hyper attuned to picking up when other people aren't actually listening to us. And so what we have to do is we have to prove that we're listening, particularly if there's distrust and we think they might be suspicious of us. And the way that we prove we're listening is by what we say after they finish speaking. And there's this technique that they teach at Harvard and Stanford and all over the place called looping for understanding that's been shown to be the most powerful way to do this. And it's pretty simple, right? Step one is ask someone a question, preferably a deep question. Step two is listen to what they say, and then try and repeat back in your own words, what you just heard them say. And then step three, and this is the one people always forget is ask if you got it right. Now, the reason why that's so powerful is twofold. First of all, I'm proving to you that I'm listening to you. You can't suspect I'm just waiting my turn to speak because I've shown you that I've listened to you. I've shown you that I'm processing what you're saying. But the second thing that's really beneficial is the benefit for me as a listener, which is sometimes we get in our own way listening, right? Somebody says something we disagree with and we start arguing with them in our head. And so now we're not actually listening to them. We're just waiting to make our argument. But if my assignment in a conversation is I have to pay attention well enough to repeat back to you what you're saying to me, I'm kind of hacking myself. I'm tricking myself into listening more closely. And it's really powerful. That's the last missing component of being a super communicator. One of the things that I think to people who I feel like might be super communicators, I feel like they do all of these things well, but they're also just generally like good conversationalists. It's like, even when there's no agenda, they keep a conversation going. Is that just asking more questions? What are the habits you can build? Let me ask you, you're probably a pretty good conversationalist, right? You have conversations on the podcast all the time. When you hit a point when there's a silence, what do you do? So in a conversation like this, it happens rarely only because I've done some research. I have a bunch of topics I want to talk about. I have a little bit of an agenda and I don't know the person that well. When it's a good friend, you know, and this happened actually three, four months ago, we've had au pairs and we called our au pair who's in Spain and we talked to her and we got to this point where it was like, we both want to stay connected But like we've gotten the life update from each other and we were kind of at this weird impasse. And I was like, all I could think about was I know some people that no matter the conversation they're in, it would always just free flow and feel like you could talk forever. And in the moment, I acknowledge like something about this conversation is missing that. So my guess is that when you say we're getting life updates, my guess is that you're asking each other about the facts of your life. Right. You're asking them like, oh, are you back home? Like, where are you living now? What's your job? But that's where the deep questions become really powerful, because if you were to ask, so like, what do you make of being home? Like, what do you feel like you've learned about it? And your au pair answers that question. 
it's pretty natural for you to kind of build on that and say like, oh, when you were an au pair, you learned that like, you're a more responsible person than you thought you were. I remember like when I was in college, I had the same experience. I went on this trip where like I ended up being much more responsible than I worried I would be. And that's actually changed everything for me. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, going forward, how are you going to use that? How do you think that's going to change how you do things? When we ask these deep questions, when we ask people how they feel about their lives, that's what these good conversationalists are doing. And most importantly, they're not only asking you that question, they are answering it themselves. So the most natural thing to do is to say like, hey, like, tell me how you feel about high school. Like, what was it like? And they tell you, that's a deep question. Then the most natural thing to do is to say like, oh, that's interesting. Like my high school was really similar. Like the way I feel about it was X and Y and Z. That's when a conversation starts becoming this ping pong, right? This thing that we pass back and forward. Because if you're asking about facts, like, did you make it home? Okay. How's your mom doing? Did you get a job? What's your job? Those are dead ends. But when you ask someone how they feel about their life instead of the facts of their life, you're inviting them to open up and it's easy for you to open up in return. And once you open up to each other, that's what a great conversation is. The people whom you love talking to, you love talking to them because it feels authentic and it feels intimate and it feels like you can share things about yourself and they share things about themselves. Having evaluated a lot of this, studied this, what are some of the magic and the benefits in life that come from this skill? Oh my gosh. Everything. If you think about it, again, communication is our superpower as a species. People who are really good at communication, they tend to do better than everyone else. And not just like in success. They're not like just great managers or they're people who are invited into opportunities because everyone likes having them around. Studies actually show they tend to live longer. They're healthier as they get older. There's this thing called the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which is what it's called now. It's had lots of names over the years. But it's the largest longitudinal study that we have of happiness, basically. And what they found is that there's only one thing that determines if you'll be happy and healthy at age 65. And that is if you have at least a handful, at least one, preferably two or three, strong, meaningful relationships with another person. That doesn't mean that you started them at 45, right? That means you started them way earlier. Connecting with other people is what makes us happy. Our brains have evolved to crave it. And connecting with other people leads to more opportunities. It leads to the other people liking us more and trusting us more. It leads to liking and trusting ourselves. If there's one thing you can work on in life, the thing that would pay the greatest dividends is learning how to be a super communicator. Because everything else you want to do depends on your ability to communicate with other people, to connect with them, and to be able to work together. Awesome. What would you say is the, to loop full circle, the habit someone listening should kind of put into action today or tomorrow to start their journey to become a super communicator? So here's the habit. Let me explain what the goal is and I'll say what the habit is. The goal is to get yourself to a place where you understand instinctually that the point of every conversation is not to convince someone of something. It's not even necessarily to find a common ground. The goal of a conversation is to understand each other right? I want to understand you and I want to help you understand me. If we've achieved that understanding, then the conversation has been a success. And so there's a number of habits that help us get there. But the biggest one is simply asking those deep questions. What you will find in this, the data is unequivocal on this. People who are successful, people who are super communicators, people who are successful in Silicon Valley and other places, if you count the number of questions they ask, it's like a power log different than the average person. 
They just ask a lot of questions because when you ask questions, it feels like you're getting invited into a discussion. You want to share something with a person. And when they show you that they're listening to you and they offer something about themselves, they engage in reciprocal vulnerability or reciprocal authenticity, then you feel close to them. You feel like you trust them. So there's lots of different things that the book explains you can do. But if you could only do one thing, it would be get into the habit of asking deep questions. And if someone's listening to this and thinking, gosh, I want to be the person that asks questions, like they genuinely want to ask more questions and they find that it's like in the moment, it's hard. Like they've got these habits of how they communicate that they need to break. How would you apply kind of some of the lessons of habit to these circumstances for someone who's trying to change their natural conversational style? So the first thing is, recognize that a deep question is literally just asking someone like, what'd you make of that? That's an easy question to always fall back on. Somebody says, oh, I just went to the, to see you two at the sphere. Oh, really? What'd you make of that? Like, what was that like? That's a habit, a fallback question that anyone can use, but you can also just practice it on your own, even without other people. There was a study that was done by some Harvard business school professors where their students were going to have conversations with strangers and they told them beforehand, write down three topics on an index card that you can discuss. And they were dumb topics. It took like seven seconds for them to do this. It was like TV show last night and the game this weekend and where you're going on vacation. And then they told everyone, OK, go ahead and put the card in your pocket that you just scribbled on and go have your conversations. And people found that in general, they did not actually talk about those things that they had written down. But almost everyone felt so much less anxious about the conversation because they had something to fall back on. And so part of it is just before you go into a conversation, if you know this is going to be a tough conversation, if you know that you have a habit where you tend to talk too much and listen not enough, just decide some general question like, what do you make of that, that you're going to ask whenever you can. And eventually it's going to be a habit and eventually you're going to do it without even thinking about it. I like it. I'm going to make a list of like three things. I'll just keep in a note. It's good, like anytime good. I, I just it. have them, I feel less worried about anything. I got the chance to take a look at the book before. So thank you for sharing it. It's just come out. Where do you want people to go other than to buy the book or to learn more or where should we send them? They can buy the book on Amazon or Audible or Barnes and Noble, anywhere they buy books. Your local bookstore is actually a great place to buy it. And if you want to get in contact with me, if you just Google me, Charles Duhigg, I'm the only Charles Duhigg on earth, or you can Google the power of habit or super communicators and my website will come up. And I'll mention that actually on my website, I have my email address, which is charles at charlesduhigg.com. And I read and respond to every single email I get from a reader or a listener. Cause I figure if you take the time to like put your thoughts together for me, that I should respond to those. I think there's like 28,000 emails that we've responded to so far, you know, over the last number of years. But I would love to hear from folks about how they communicate and what they found to be successful. And I promise you, I will read it and I'll write back. Judging by the number of people who reach out, I feel confident in this community reaching out to you and letting you know how this, how this goes. <laughs> oh, good. I want to hear it. Tell me if you think I did a good job communicating. And, and by the way, Chris, you are a great communicator. Like you are a super communicator. You do a really wonderful job of just keeping the conversation going. I think in the spirit of continual development, there are moments in my life when I'm not as prepared as I am for an interview where I still feel like I can make progress. And so yeah. I'm still putting some of the things in the book into action as well. So okay. I think no matter That's where cool. we are, even super communicators can improve. I totally agree. I totally agree. This has been great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. This has been really, really fun. I really appreciate it. Wow. 
I feel like I learned so much today and I am excited to start creating more positive, healthy habits in my life and become a super communicator. And I hope you feel the same. If you do, please consider one tiny, easy action that has such a huge impact on my life and this podcast. And that's just clicking the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app if you haven't already. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, colleague, or family member, or really anyone you think might benefit from it. Thank you so much in advance. That's it for this week. I will see you next week. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. So I want to talk about an amazing resource, the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where every week NerdWallet's in-house experts and financial journalists set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. The nerds have already helped me get smarter about saving money on groceries, avoiding some of the latest financial scams, and boosting my credit score since it's actually been going a little bit up and a little bit more down lately as I've been taking advantage of a few recent credit card offers. They also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life so you'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.